0: Making the sign of the cross, that that which originally is a means of execution, is a symbol we place upon ourselves. It's almost like this. It is, yeah. It's almost something like that. Yeah. But it becomes different because of the resurrection.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Word of Life Church podcast. My name is Cole Novak. I'm the worship pastor here, sitting here with Pastor Brian Zond, our lead pastor, affectionately known as BZ. Yeah, yeah. On podcasts, I should be
0: BZ. BZ. I don't need to be a pa- I am a pastor. You are? I'm happy to be a pastor. <laughs> pastor for 42 years, but I don't know. I want to be BZ. When I'm just sitting here having a
1: conversation. I love it. <laughs> uh, we're starting a new series of episodes today. We're calling BZ Basement Tapes. And uh, we are neither in a basement, <laughs> nor is this being recorded to tape. So BZ, <laughs> would you want to unpack for us what, well, what's the BZ Basement I, Tapes yeah, it, about? It,
0: there, there's a lot. There's a long history here. Um, i got to decide where to start. Well, we did things um, during COVID. Those, those, those dark days. Those, those, the year those, of our Lord, oh, 2020. Man. And those first months, you know, where we were really locked down. And I did, fr- actually from my basement, you know, things like my top 10 favorite albums, top 10 favorite movies, uh, top 10 most influential books I've read, you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah. And we called that BZ Basement Tapes. Well, that's a connection with Dylan because Bob Dylan... In 1966, he has this motorcycle wreck, allegedly. It's kind of shrouded in mystery. And he didn't tour or do anything. Uh, I think it was maybe more of an excuse for him just to get off the road and yep. coupons. He's living in in uh, Woodstock, New York, but he wants to keep his band with him. And so he says, well, we'll we'll do some recording. And they have this band house called Big Pink. It's, it's a house near woodstock and they would just uh they would rec- record in the basement and uh that's how he kind of kept the and by the way uh, i don't know if people are interested in this but i think so but the band which becomes a very influential band yeah when they went when they finally strike out on their own they said well what shall we be what way we call ourselves they'd been bob dylan's band and they just said well we're the band. <laughs> and so they, the band became the band because it was just the band. That's awesome. And uh, But they, these were not released, these recordings, but they got bootlegged. I'm, we're talking about like in the 70s now. In the 70s, they were being bootlegged, which means somebody got a hold of the tapes. And you could go to a Dylan show, and there would be somebody out there selling bootleg vinyls, which is so cool. The idea, yeah. I don't know how, you know, do you have, can you press vinyl the, somewhere? The process of having to bootleg something yeah, it was, uh, then. And so then eventually, uh, Dylan thought, well, it's already out there, it's being bootlegged, so they officially released it and they called it The Basement Tapes. Yeah. And uh, so this is, I don't know.
1: <laughs> I don't know if it makes sense. This is BZ's Basement Tapes. Well, I so, think it makes sense. You've yeah. talked about how you've been on countless podcasts yourself, I, I, having written books, I've talked about them. so many. But never have we had this kind of thing where we're kind of capturing these conversations yeah. from here, from our church, from Word of Life Church. So I think it's fun uh, to get to do more of a deep dive, and th- these are our basement tapes, which I love. I, oh, think I it's like. It's great, um, and so. With that, you have a new book that is also now available called The Wood Between the Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. Uh, And as we enter the Lenten season, I think contemplating the cross is just such a a timely theme to be focusing on. Uh, And so I would just love to, as we start, kind of broad strokes, why this book right now?
0: This book has an origin story that I I tell early in the book. I'll, I'll share that with you. Um, my wife and I, Perry and I, have have taken up pilgrimage walks. We've done, I think, seven or eight, varying between 40 miles and 500 miles, and uh, we were doing one of our 500-mile pilgrimages that on the Camino de Santiago, the Francaise route. You start in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, and 500 miles later, you arrive in Santiago de Compostela. and this was our... This was our first one, the first big one. We've done it a couple times, but
1: this is the, this was... Uh, just starting low, just a, a quick 500 s- miles for your first one.
0: Well, it was the first 500-mile <laughs> one. We'd, we'd done some other ones. Got it. So it was September fourteenth, 2016, which was by happy accident, Holy Cross Day. Mm. And we didn't plan it that way, Yeah, but it, it was. And the first day is a hard day because you, you start in Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, France, and you have to cross the Pyrenees. And it's a 15-mile day, and it's mountainous. And it's, it's pretty demand. I mean, I've done a lot of hiking, but I can tell you it's demanding. Yeah. You're carrying your pack, all your stuff. It's a long, hard day. You arrive. There's only one place to stay because you're in the mountains. And you arrive at this monastery in Roncesvalles. Spain's a big monastery. And they have big guest houses, I mean, huge, like, you know, barracks mm. to house all the pilgrims. We got settled in, and I went into the chapel of the monastery. I'm just sitting there, and I, I'm looking at the crucifix in this monastery's chapel. And I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me instructions. Hmm. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a guy that just walks around all day going, God told me, God told me, yeah. God told me. But yeah. there are those moments. Yeah. Because <laughs> there there is a living God. Yes. Who does communicate. Yes. And I felt like the Spirit said giving me instructions for this Camino. Enter every church you can. Pay attention to the crucifix. Ask yourself, what does this mean? And don't be too quick to give an answer. Mm. And so we did. Now, I'm walking on this religious pilgrim route. There are churches and chapels everywhere. They're not all open, but a lot of them are. And so every day, I'm going into one of these churches or chapels, looking at the crucifix, paying attention to it, asking what does this mean, and then on I go. So I did that for, it turned out to be 40 days. 40 days, 500-mile walking meditation on the cross. And what's interesting is I wasn't seeing the same crucifix over and over. I'm seeing a different one every time because we're on the move. Mm. And these are not mass-produced. These are one-offs, and so you have all kinds of... You know, there's some where Jesus is more or less regal. There's others where they lean into the sorrow or the suffering. Some are grotesque. Some are more uh, beautiful, if you will. And so I'm seeing different depictions of the same story over and over and over. And then resisting, saying, "Oh, it means thus and so." Yeah. So I and it was it was something I meditated on. What what does it mean that when the Son of God came among us? He ended up nailed to a tree. And so I, I meditated on that. And now, you know, years have gone by. That's the first time we did that one. And I just thought, okay, after several years now of thinking about this, meditating on this, I was prepared to offer some of the meanings. Mm. Not, not one meaning or not, and not being definitive, these are the absolute. No. Yeah. I thought, well, I see, even as I saw many crucifixes, I'm seeing many meanings yeah. in the cross, and yeah. so,
1: so that's uh, that's why I wrote this book. That's beautiful. And in the first chapter, you kind of get into this difference between kind of atonement theory and contemplating the right. cross, um, resisting those easy answers. How quick we can be to, you know, just put a judgment on it or say it means this, this, and this. Uh, how would you kind of paint the difference between Atonement theory and contemplating. The yeah, I, I don't
0: even like the term atonement theory. Yeah. It's so clinical, so analytical. Yeah. It seems to remove any sort of passion. Hmm. Uh, I think that's not the best way. And what, what happens is is we don't tend to talk about atonement theories. We tend to decide, okay, there must be one atonement theory, and then we yeah. fight about which one it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't like that. Yeah. Because it, it strikes me as once you have your, quote, atonement theory that you can present in two or three sentences, like the cross means thus and so. Next question, Moving please. Moving on. Yeah. And that just seems wrong. I mean, the <laughs> you can't overemphasize the significance of the cross. Yeah. It's at the very center of everything. Yeah. And to just be able to dismiss it with a tidy little formula seems really wrong to me. It's arrogant. And th- and besides that I think some of the theories are in fact wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's even even if they were right I think it's not healthy to just to dismiss it so easily, but then when some of the theories are wrong, that's
1: really a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Then what would you say, then, is the, the opposite approach of just beholding and contemplating the cross? Yeah, that is. The,
0: I mean, that's the opposite approach is to, you know, to allow it to be many things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, I, in that book, I, I give an analogy, I suppose, that you have in the book of Revelation. You have the descriptions of these angelic beings mm-hmm. who cease not To say day and night, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, what do we think about these angelic beings? Do we think that they're like, you know, robots on infinite repeat? That they, you know, just they have the most boring job in the world, or they're just programmed to over and over? No, I think of it like this: I think these angelic beings around the throne of God are granted a glimpse of the glory of God and this praise erupts out of them just spontaneously and then they get another glimpse <gasps> and it's 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 they are living in an eternal state of awe yeah and each moment that they behold the glory of God holy 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 is the lord god almighty so I think that's similar to how we ought to approach the cross.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. There,
0: there's there's reverence, and then there is a sense that we can't be done with it. Hmm. We can't say, okay, now I'll move on to something else.
1: Yeah. Well, th- their response, these heavenly creatures, is not to assign some kind of uh, logic around it. Right. But it's, it's awe and it's wonder, and that's the response. And just every time that you saw that new crucifix, there's that new moment of awe and wonder.
0: Uh, and another thing that... Because this has to be acknowledged, um, I am by default Protestant. I'm not protesting anything. Um, you know, I'm 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 very close to a lot of Catholics and Orthodox and speak in their seminars and monasteries yeah. and things like that. But I mean, I'm just acknowledging that which is the case. Yeah. And so I didn't grow up around crucifix as much, because Protestants opt for whatever reason, and I don't think there's a particularly good reason. Um, i't this wasn't Luther. I don't know where it, we, we opted for a um, empty cross, which is, you know, a little more than a geometric symbol. and it, it too easily becomes just some sort of abstract equation, yeah. or something like that. Uh, the idea of having a figure on the cross, so, somebody says, well, he, he, he's, not, he's, not on the, he's not on the cross still. Yes. I said, yeah, and he's not in the manger still, but we, yeah. we portray that. Yes. I mean, he was on the cross, and that's yes. central to our salvation. And so to have – see, the cross is not a factor in an atonement equation. It is the crux – of the story of the gospel. And so I I like seeing, I like the pathos of seeing Christ actually on the cross. Mm -hmm. Now I'm I'm thinking all kinds of directions we can go in this, but I should slow down. But but I can't, I I, I gotta say something. Because the first thing that I would like to recover in this book is the strangeness of it. Because we can become accustomed to it. Yeah. I'll finish that thought. So I was seeing all these crucifixes, you know, not just empty crosses, but crucifixes. And it draws me into the story, into into the strangeness of the story. So Jesus Christ crucified is the most portrayed event in the history of human art. Right? And, and that, should, Wild. that should say something to us. And so in, in the book, the, the book has uh, 16 images in it. It doesn't have this one. I do refer to it, but I didn't, I didn't put it in the book because mainly I couldn't find the artist, so I couldn't find the source and get permission, yeah. but also I don't know if the publisher would have gone with it. But I saw a cartoon one time and... Uh, a flying saucer has landed on Earth. Two aliens, you know what they look like, you know, the eyes and all that. <laughs> two, two aliens have got out of their flying saucer. They're encountering Earth. You know, the little cockpit thing is open on their flying saucer, and they're standing before a large life-size crucifix, the kind that you would see, you know, along roadsides in Spain, places like that. And one alien says to the other, you know what we need to do? We need to get the F out of here. That's what we need to do. (laughs) And it's funny and it's profound. It is. Because what that cartoon does, it enables you to see the cross through someone else's eyes for the first time. And I I imagine that our our aliens are thinking, you know, a planet where this is a predominant image, where they they depict someone nailed to a tree. This is not a safe place. No. And they're not wrong. So so the first thing I'm going to do is just recover the strangeness of it. Okay,
1: so. Yeah. Well, you said, you know, some people might respond, he's not on the cross anymore. I've been one of those people. I've had that thought before. And again, growing up in Protestantism and uh, the cross... When we do see it, it is just two intersecting lines. Um, but even that, I've had conversations with friends that talk about the cross, like, yeah, we don't have a cross up in the church because we feel like you know that just might have too much baggage for people. <laughs> and then the, the response is then, well, didn't it have worse baggage for oh, early man. Christians?
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you could not invent a more difficult way to launch a religion in the Greco-Roman world of the first century than to build it around a cross. Yeah. I mean, that is... It's foolishness. That is absolutely not going to work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Unless, unless there's something there. I think uh, Fleming Rutledge, I don't think I can find it in the book. I'd like to quote her, but I'm, I'm afraid I'll just spend too much time looking for it. But... She says it's far and away the most irreligious image to ever enter into religion. She says it better. I can't remember how she says it. But um, the cross was so repulsive, so abhorrent, that even the word crucifixion wasn't used in polite company. You would use euphemisms for it. And Jesus himself does that. In John 12, when he says, and I, when I am lifted Mm -hmm. up. And then later on, John comments, this was to indicate by what manner he would die. Wow. But Jesus doesn't say crucified there, he says, because he's speaking publicly. It's the first time Jesus, he, he says things privately to his disciples. This is the first time he says something to the masses. About being crucified, but doesn't say crucified. He says lifted up. Wow! And it, so it was. A, it was abhorrent. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll wait to get to some of the beauty aspects. But so so we begin there. I think recovering yeah. the absurdity of it, the strangeness of it. It's it's an offense, a stumbling block for Jews. It's bonkers, crazy, ridiculous for the Gentiles, and yet. It is the center of our faith.
1: And yet, and it being the most depicted, uh, use the word uh, story picture, Mm -hmm. um, story image, why, for for the Christian faith, is it not the empty tomb that has kind of become our symbol? Why why the cross as the central image? And you talk in the first chapter about how we must view the cross in light of the empty tomb, in light of the resurrection. Yeah,
0: and I, I think of it like this. I think that... The light emanating from the empty tomb mm. reveals the cross for us. So that in Christian conversation, when we say cross, when we say crucifixion, we we also mean resurrection or else mm. we wouldn't be having a conversation it. would about just be it. another one. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead. See, another thing, that, p- people think that Jesus' death by crucifixion was some sort of rare and exotic thing. It was... Appallingly common. Um, When Jesus was quite young, probably I'm trying to remember the dates in my head here, uh, in Sepphoris, which is just five miles from Nazareth, the Romans crucified six thousand Galileans. Six thousand, you know, just that, that, like, just there. The Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of people over, you know, several centuries throughout the Roman Empire. So most people had seen a crucifixion and so so it wasn't uncommon. And if and if Jesus isn't raised, he's just one of the nameless hapless victims of Roman imperial crucifixion. So when we speak of the cross of Christ, we mean the cross of the crucified and risen yeah, Christ. Yeah, And uh, the resurrection is essential, and yet somehow, early on as far as an image, whether in language or in text or hymn, the cross occupies a center place, but never disconnected from resurrection.
1: Yes. Well, even Jesus, his invitation is to take up your cross, right. which again for us That's in nuts. Christendom... It becomes just an innocuous thing. Take up your cross. What does it actually mean for us? Whereas for them, it was it was a stumbling block. Like you said, it was uh, astounding and and uh, confusing.
0: We hear it as a call to some sort of piety, you know, because we um, we instinctively associate cross with religious, you know, endeavors. Uh, no one did that in the first century, <laughs> and it would have been shocking. Yeah. What? what? Take up my what? He didn't say take up your prayer shawl. Yeah. He didn't say take up your Torah. He says take up your cross. Which means I'm, I'm calling you to something that is dangerous and uh, where you, you could possibly die doing this following me. I think no one says it better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he said when Christ calls a man he bids him come and die.
1: That's the phrase that's kind of been rolling around in my head as yeah. well.
0: That's you know from his classic The Cost of Discipleship, which yeah. is you know, one of the one of the most important theological works ever. Maybe you could make a case that it might be the most important of the twentieth century. Could.
1: Yeah. I think it's it's worth sitting with. How for you, um this book being the the, the outflow of this specific experience on the Camino, but also life lived contemplating the cross. You right. talk about how as you wrote this book, there's an icon that presides over all of it, and that's your desire in writing every book. Um, what are some ways that maybe you've brought in this practice, being someone who's grown up in Protestantism, being a Protestant by default, how do you work in this practice? Well, I mean, I, I literally do it. I mean, I, in the sense that I literally look
0: at a crucifix and meditate on it. You know, icons, not not modern art, but icons. Yeah. They, there's modern icons too, but I mean, keeping it within the theological tradition of iconography yeah. that p- predominates mostly in the Orthodox world, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, I don't think you can see it, but there's a whole bunch of icons up above the mantle of this fireplace, and I have those at home too. And I found it to be beneficial to actually just sit in silence and meditate, contemplate, look at it, eyes open, looking at it, at the depictions of Christ crucified, not trying to direct my thoughts in particular other than to look at the image. Now, this though has a history. Um, Very early on, the cross, you know, it's in the New Testament, it's replete throughout the New Testament. It's... The center of the New Testament. Um, and it appears immediately in the hymns of the early church, they're singing about the cross. The hmm. sign of the cross, uh, that's, for, that's late first century. I mean, wow. a, at least. It may have been even earlier. So making the sign of the cross, again, which is very interesting, that that, that which originally is a means of execution, is a symbol we place upon ourselves. It's almost like this. It is, yeah. you know. It's almost something like that, yeah. but it becomes different because of the resurrection. But images, so, so they make the sign of the cross, they sing about the cross, they teach about the cross, they speak of the cross, but they didn't depict Christ crucified while crucifixion was still employed in the Roman Empire. Mm. It becomes it's outlawed in the fourth century, and after after it's no longer used because I think I think that was just a little bit too much, a little bit too provocative. Yeah. Um, but after crucifixion was banned in the Roman Empire in the fourth century, then it began to appear in churches and in the iconography. Um, that's just the history of it. Um, and I, 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 we're coming back to a theme I'd already mentioned. Once you liberate your thinking from attempting to say the cross means one thing, then the door is open for all kinds of meditations, and you mm. see all kinds of things. So the book has 19 chapters and kind of a long poem at the end. Um, so that would be, I would say it's 20 in, in the beginning of the book, I talk about it's like looking through a kaleidoscope. Yeah. You know how you, see, you look through the kaleidoscope, you see the geometric designs, the colors, all that, and then you click, you turn it once, and then they all kind of fall into a different pattern and different colors. And so that's, that, I, I'm attempting a kaleidoscopic view of the cross. So let's look at it in this way. Now let's look at it this way. Now this way, and so I've got twenty takes on the cross in the book, which doesn't mean I think there's twenty. Yeah, it means that was enough for me. Yeah, to write about, but but it doesn't it doesn't end. Yeah, and uh, and I I I wanted the book to be not I don't know how to say this nicely. I didn't want it to be dry and academic. Yeah. So there's a lot of art in the book. I draw upon film, poetry, movies, art images. Yeah. Um, because I think, I think artists sometimes will approach these things better than theologians. Or at least they communicate it better. Hmm. And so this was an artistic or poetic approach to theology. Yeah. Uh, unapologetically. I mean, I don't think that's fanciful. I think that's appropriate.
1: Yeah. I love the, it, it all emanates from this place of of love and of passion, which even the crucifixion yeah. being called his passion, it's kind of entering into that space with the crucified Christ. I think as we're kind of ending the end of this conversation, do you have any specific encouragement for people that might be listening well, or we're, watching? Well, we're we're at
0: the beginning of Lent. And so, I'm not going to assume that everybody is is clear in their mind what Lent is. Yeah. Lent uh, the word itself is just an old English word for spring because it's, you know, we're coming in the springtime. But the idea is there's several ideas. It's it's a it's a Mild imitation of Jesus' fasting of 40 days in the wilderness. So it's 40 days of some form of fasting minus the Sundays. You know, the Sundays are always a feast day. Yeah. So it's 40 days minus the Sundays from Ash Wednesday to Easter. And so we are entering into some form of self denial. Hmm. Uh, But also, the Christian calendar tells the story of Jesus. And with the beginning of Ash Wednesday, we're headed to the cross. I mean, that's what we're journeying with Jesus. Now he's set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem where he knows a cross awaits him. Hmm. And so we are journeying with Jesus ever nearer to Good Friday. We can think of Lent as the journey to Easter because we know that's what it is. But in some ways... Let that be the surprise. Yeah, we're actually journeying to Good Friday. Yeah, and to Holy Saturday, and it's 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 a journey toward darkness, and so this is a, I mean, this is a good time to meditate on cross themes. Yeah. So that's why I mean I'll just be honest with you. That's that's why the book was released right at the time of the beginning of Lent. I mean, it was they the publisher could have released it in. The fall, you know, and they said, "Well, no, let's. This this is apropos to the season of Lent, so let's let's hold off on yeah. it." Yeah. And so it was intentionally designed to be released at this time to to yeah. help people. You know, I've written I've written a, a, a daily meditation on you know a devotional book, The Unvarnished Jesus for yeah. Lent. But this is this is not that, but it is. Think it's very good for Lenten reading. So, yeah. so, so we're moving toward the cross,
1: and we're just keeping our eyes on the cross for this this season. Well, and even with Lent, talking about how it's you know the forty days of fasting, but we have the feasting Sundays. Um, there is that space in it where we can't, and you saying that you didn't want the book to be too dry. Even in Lent, we have that thing where we feast on Sundays. Right. We remember the risen Christ, even as we contemplate the cross. But during that time, we're also abstaining from the hallelujah. Like in, right. in our liturgies, yeah. we're taking yeah. a, a step back to say, no, we're not going to go there yet. We're not going to think about the empty tomb just yet. We're going to You're a musician,
0: the and I think of Lent as moving into a minor key.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: You know, Jesus has been healing and we and transfiguration is this moment of glory, you know, it's big swells. I'm thinking I'm thinking of the gospel story with a film score. Yeah. Okay. But now coming down from the mount of transfiguration, Jesus is talking about his death and we move into a minor key. And it stays in the minor key until the hallelujah chorus on yeah. Easter Sunday or yeah. something. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and to sit there with that tension, yeah. with that dissonance, I think is such a, a a difficult thing at times, but so worth it, especially when you do finally reach that moment of resolve, when you reach the empty tomb. It's such a, a beautiful, joyous moment. So I think it's beautiful. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, BZ. Thank you so much. Thank you for everybody (laughs) listening and watching. Uh, If you'd like to pick up the book, The Wood Between the Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross, you can click the link in the description. uh, And we'll see you all next time. Grace and peace.